so often the triggers and difficulties in relationships come from not acknowledging our relational needs. And there's a beautiful phrase from a, a writer called Harvel Hendricks. He says, every you know, relational complaint or criticism is a tragic expression of an unmet need. But you think about when we are fighting with people, we're really triggered and we pause and think, oh, what am I really longing for right now? And then we find, oh, it's about actually feeling like you're listening to me and that you value my contribution or that you respect me. Do you ever find yourself getting more and more rattled in a conversation until it's difficult to think straight? Perhaps you feel a bit stuck in patterns of behaviour which you recognise are unhelpful but are difficult to change. Or maybe you wish your colleagues could be more emotionally aware and stop causing you to react so badly. It may be easy to figure out what we're feeling in the cold light of day, but when we get hot under the collar and our emotions are running away with us, it can be incredibly difficult to identify what's really going on and why we're feeling quite so het up. This week, I'm joined by Graham Lee, executive coach, leadership professional, psychotherapist and author of a new book, Breakthrough Conversations for Coaches, Consultants and Leaders, published by Routledge. Graham talks about how to recognise when we are in our red emotional state and then how to apply some simple mindfulness techniques to help get you out of red and back into green making a radical difference to how you deal with relational issues, both at home and in the workplace. We discuss the important difference between primary and secondary emotions and how our unmet needs can be at the heart of every issue. Graham brings some fascinating insights from his work in team coaching and couples therapy and has some simple suggestions for what to do when we quite literally see red. So listen to this episode if you want to be more aware of your emotions, thoughts and feelings, even in the midst of difficult situations. Understand the difference between primary and secondary emotions and why this is so powerful when resolving interpersonal conflict. And listen, if you want to get some simple techniques to get you out of your emotionally charged red zone and into your calm and wise green zone. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP, now working as a coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water. We hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to feeling stressed and exhausted. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options. Stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. It is possible to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in difficult circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you'll simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? 
your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So it's wonderful to welcome onto the podcast today, Graham Lee. Now, Graham is an executive coach and a leadership development professional. He's got over 30 years of experience doing this. And he also combines this with a parallel track of being a psychotherapist for couples and individuals and also teaches mindfulness. So a lot of different things there, Graham. Yes, there are. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Now, I really wanted to get Graham on because... I was very interested in the work that he's doing because, Graham, you don't just focus on the benefits of mindfulness and getting people to meditate and all those sorts of things, but you focus also on how we get people to be emotionally grounded. Also, you're talking about how we do this in the middle of conversations rather than just on on our own. So, Graham, can you start off by telling us how and why did you get into all this in the first place and who the sort of people that you work with? Mostly what we've got is, is clients who or patients who are trying to deal with some situation in a more effective way. And they're being derailed to some extent by emotional triggers inside them, some of them from their history, you know, some of them from other things happening in their lives. You know, but there's, there's a sense of how can I help this person become more emotionally regulated in order to kind of to meet the challenges of their lives more effectively. Yeah, so that's the kind of starting place. And I suppose you know, I've trained in psychoanalysis and I've trained leadership coaching and I've done mindfulness, you know, lots of different things. And I suppose increasingly what I found is that whilst mindfulness is, in, is incredibly useful, you know, the skills, when, when I run eight week courses and people have done mindfulness, they do get a lot of benefit out of it. But if you follow up and then you ask them, okay, so how much mindfulness are you doing? They say, I mean, I would say the majority would say, I haven't been doing any mindfulness. It's nice to know I can do those skills, but I still get triggered. And actually, do you know, I feel a bit bad about myself for not doing more mindfulness. So I increasingly found myself thinking, mm, what can I do in the session there and then as I talk to somebody, if it's a coaching or a psychotherapy session, what can I do here and now that supports them to find right here as we talk to each other, that kind of spaciousness and groundedness that you'd expect in a mindfulness experience just through me directing them to pay attention. Supposing, you know, someone says to me, um, oh, I'm feeling really concerned about how to manage some of the difficult relationships in, in our GP practice. Well, these are difficult relationships. I don't know how to confront this. I feel I can't really speak up. So I would say, okay, so what is it that's getting in the way of you really vocalising what you want to say? And the person would say, Oh, I, I, you know, I like harmony. I don't want to upset things, you know, and I'm not sure it's going to be received very well, these kinds of things. So what's unusual then in my approach is I would say, okay, and, and as you think about the struggle to speak up in that way, what's it like to pause right now? Just bring your awareness down into your body. Just have a sense of your feet on the floor, the breath in your belly. What are you noticing as you think about the struggle to actually really speak up? And the person might say, oh, 
and they might take a while to get it. They're not even sure what I'm asking them to do. And it takes them some coaxing and some invitation and some suggestions. And then they say, oh, I'm feeling tight in my belly and actually a bit tight in my jaw as well. Oh, what does that associate with? Actually, I feel quite angry, angry that I can't find that part of myself to really fight for myself. Okay, so what's it like just to notice that? There you are with your anger. There you are with your, your sense of frustration. And can you see that as I'm doing this, I'm simply inviting them to do exactly what you were doing in mindfulness practice. My experience is people are remarkably good at doing it if you invite them to it there and then. Yeah, remarkably good. And they have a sense of, wow, it's really interesting to notice this kind of anger. And as I notice this anger and stay with it, now I'm feeling rather sad. Oh, how does that sadness show up in your body? Oh, it feels rather heavy and there's a bit of something behind my eyes as if I might start crying, a bit of a lump in my throat. And what is that linking to for you? And they might possibly, they might say, do you know, it makes me realise that sometimes, you know, my dad could be a bit gruff and I find it really quite difficult to really speak up and say, I disagree with him or something or really push my point of view. And there's a sadness that I realised that I hadn't actually sort of got over that particular inhibition in myself. And do you see how there's quite a lot of awareness that comes very, very quickly through this kind of going down into the body experience? Yeah? So it's like we are doing what mindfulness does, yeah? which is to observe our emotions, observe our thoughts, observe our body. We're doing that in the service of then saying, given all this awareness now, how might you have your conversation in a more useful way with this colleague at work who, who you think you can't confront? Is that painting a, a picture? That's really interesting. And I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm sure that emotional awareness would really help in that conversation, but how, how does that then really play out? What would then be the difference in the subsequent conversation that happens compared to if they hadn't really gone down and analysed emotionally where they were? Would, would there then be a difference? Does the awareness itself make the difference of the conversation or do they then have to choose to do something different? I mean, the bunch of methodologies that I introduce in the book, which people do find quite helpful. So one of them is a sort of red, amber, green traffic light way of just looking at one's own body brain states and looking at one's emotions and looking at the conversations we have. So somebody in this situation might say, oh, I get I get anxious and then my conversational style is rather timid or I'm reticent or I don't say or I'm a bit kind of accommodating or appeasing in my style or I back down too quickly or I speak quietly so they'll kind of give you all these kind of markers of what this red conversational style is and what this red body brain state feels like and so you kind of give them a lot of space just to really be with that but then I would say okay so think about you when you're you're most productive when you're most powerful when you somehow feel you really communicate with assertiveness and confidence and conviction and you get your point across and you feel really satisfied by that. Yeah. And so what I'm talking about is then shifting into what we call a green state. This is described, which is a kind of reflective state that allows us to harness our resourcefulness and our strengths. So in a way, we, we'd be talking about it from a neuroscientific point of view of switching from a limbic system and a sort of triggered polyvagal system that's more stress or cortisol based system. Yes. So we're going from a red system like that. I talk about the neuroscience in the book, over to a green system, which is, is going to be a prefrontal cortex and what we would think of as the social engagement system from polyvagal theory, you know, and other positive hormones, oxytocin, dopamine flowing. 
So I don't overlabor this kind of scientific base to it, but there is a whole chapter about, look, for those people who are a bit skeptical about getting you to do this, of which you kind of come across plenty of managers or medics or whatever who, who would say to you, come on, I'm just trying to solve this problem. I don't need to kind of have anyone inviting me to kind of notice the feelings in my left foot or something. <laughs> you know? and, you, and you can see why they'd be a bit sceptical, you know, if you're very cognitive in your way of thinking and solving the problems of the world or the, the challenges of your job. So I would then use the neuroscience to sort of tell a story in that way and then simply ask them, would you, let, would you allow me to just give you an experience and see what that's like for you in terms of making sense of what's going on, recognising what's a red conversational style and shifting over to a green style, yeah? And I would say 95% plus of people I, you know, you, I do this with would say, oh, wow, that's really helpful. I feel much more resourced. Because the act of choreographing their attention in this way, I mean, the very act of saying to somebody, how do you feel like right now? What do you notice in your body? Can you bring your attention in close to that? Can you stay with that? What's it like to really examine and flow with this kind of ever-changing pattern of sensations in your body? When you say that to them, they might be looking at a red triggered part of themselves. But curiously, the part of the brain that has to do that is actually the prefrontal cortex. So that you're inviting the green capacity, the mindful capacity, the reflective capacity to observe a part of the self, which is actually a more triggered part of oneself. Is that making sense? Is this kind of almost like, I mean, that, that is a, a description really of what mindfulness is actually what I just said to you. Oh, that, that makes huge amounts of sense. And I was just thinking that the similarity between, well, it, it's identical, you know, in, in our training that we do around resilience with, with doctors and other professionals in really high stress jobs talk about amygdala the whole time you know you harry your amygdala can can hijack you you go into your fight flight or freeze you know adrenaline response which you would yeah call the red zone i call it being backed into the corner where you literally can't make the right decisions can you because the blood is blood is diverted and i think a lot of us quite a lot of the time are just operating from those red zones all the time and particularly when it comes into those conversations and mm. yeah your thinking becomes very black and white you don't make good decisions you can't be creative but it's then a getting people to recognize when you're there when they're there like you said and then b helping people to get out of that red zone into their green zone so i guess the parasympathetic rest and digest zone so that they can then have better conversations, like you said, think with their prefrontal cortex. And to me, the the difficulty is how do you help people get from your from red to green in the heat of the moment? Because it, it's much easier to do that if you can take a break, if you can go off, if you can reflect, if you can chat to a friend, if you can have a good night's sleep and then come back to it in a much calmer situation the next day. But actually doing it in the moment, that's really difficult. So I'm really interested in hearing you saying that just by observing what's going on can help you get into that state. Have I understood that right? Yeah, because rather than saying to somebody, look, here's a good skill, learn to notice when you're in red and cultivate a capacity to move into green, which we might say is a kind of mindfulness activity or reflective activity or a count to 10 and go, or go for a walk around, <laughs> around the, the block or whatever it is, you know, all those things that we get people to do. I mean, they're fine, but as you say, that's quite difficult. And people can stay very triggered and they can actually, in those 
pauses, just continue ruminating and getting more and more wound up. And they think they've got calm. Then they start the conversation and they're just in red instantaneously. (laughs) So this is one of the challenges. And so this is why my emphasis when I'm training people or coaching people is we're we're actually getting quite a lot of illustration of doing it in real time with somebody facilitating it. Let Let me give you another example, actually. So I'd often get two managers together into the room, all right? Well, so if I'm, if, and I was doing some work actually in a local GP practice where there was one or two difficult relationships, particularly between the manager and, the, and one to partners, the uh, GP partners. And what we did is I would meet with one and have maybe a session and then and the other and have a session. And then we'd bring them both into the room together to talk about some other difficult things that they were trying to resolve that were always triggering for them. So then the question becomes, how do you help two people at the same time notice what state they're in and access a kind of, you know, the red to green kind of thing? So then this, there's another model in the book called the nine minute form. It says we're going to begin with one minute where each of you will just pause and, and, and just tune into how am I right now? Am I red, amber or green in relation to the prospect of this conversation? So we're beginning with one minute self-reflection. Second minute is you're each going to share what you noticed about that. And so they might say, oh, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling amber in the sense I'm feeling just habitually okay. It's how the amber one is sort of like a habitual state. Or they might say, yeah, but I notice as we think about this kind of knotty issue we're talking about, I do feel a bit red. Or they might say, I feel green. So there's 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 this kind of honest naming of that experience to each other. Now, that immediately changes the kind of, in a way, there's something about the conversation that's got a self-reflective potential in it. Does that make sense? There's a sort of green container for looking at these difficult emotions that might arise. Then they go into a a bunch of minutes where one person speaks, the other person listens, the other person reflects back some stuff, the other person then just says yes or no to what's been had. That's the full nine minutes have gone by. And then we switch, we do it again and switch roles, but once again start with the one minute pause and the and the noticing whether we're in red, amber, or green. Now you do two or three cycles like that. Initially it starts out a little bit, seems a bit weird for people, and then they start having really, because it's much slower, they have really honest conversations around what's going on between them. Just to give you to illustrate that that paired process, you know, with two with two managers, with two people, two senior people. They're at loggerheads. Everyone in the organization knows they're in loggerheads about the strategy. One thinks it should be this strategy, and one thinks it should be that strategy. And they're both very kind of influential. They've both got their allies. It's just causing confusion in the organization. I'm told this, and I meet with them each beforehand. One guy has incredible confidence in his attitude towards solving these things, great conviction. He's very clever, and he keeps on pushing his argument and thinks, if only I can get you to see it properly then you'll see that my argument is the best way of doing it yeah so we have that kind of now the other guy is a little bit more kind of open to listening yeah but he also is very intellectual he's got lots of good suggestions about how to solve it so he offers his view yeah but he never feels listened to by his colleague he never feels listened to and he gets increasingly frustrated keeps on justifying it trying to make his case one of them was around a recruitment decision. He felt he hadn't been consulted around a recruitment decision. The other guy, and the first guy says, well, 
I thought it was such an obviously good choice. Why would I need, why would we need to waste time? We just need to make sure we secured this person. And this guy kind of puts his argument again, again, what about this? What about this person, these other people? And then he gives up talking to this person. He eventually just gets to the place where he'll never listen to me. I can't be bothered to actually explore this. So in this nine minute form, this guy who's not, feels he's not being listened to, okay, what's that? What's going on for you when that happens? And you suddenly give up. He said, well, I just, I just feel I'll never be listened to. And what does it make you feel? It makes me feel really furious. Oh, I get that. I get that it makes you feel really furious. And what's it like? Help me understand what, you know, what's that like in your body when you feel really furious? Yeah, see, we, we again bring the mindfulness bit in because we're not just trying to stay in a cognitive story about this. We're trying to bring a mindfulness dimension in that says, in this here and now moment, as I talk about this experience, I actually have these tensions and contractions in my body. Yeah, so we, we suddenly have a different self-awareness, a relationship to, to this this experience he's, he's getting that experience he talks about that okay so you're really feeling frustrated you're feeling contracted in your body yeah and what's it like just to sort of notice that and, and stay with that for now and he says do you know i realize this makes me think of how how much it's important to feel respected you know i come from a culture this particular culture where you know in the family culture where respect is everything yeah. And I realized that I feel as like he doesn't he doesn't respect me when he doesn't listen to my point of view. So then I said, okay, can you can you communicate to him, you know, something about this experience? And this is where I use some of my couple therapy experience. So so the typical style of communication says, so let, let me help you think about how you might communicate this. The guy's there hearing me say this, yeah. So he's about to do it, but the guy's there, I say, okay. So if you were speaking to him, you'd say, you might say, is this right? I'd ask him, do you know, when you keep pushing your ideas at me and I feel like you don't listen to my idea, yeah, I get really annoyed. I find myself getting really annoyed. Yeah. And I just push back and push back and push back with you. And eventually I just give up and you see me disappear. I just withdraw from you. I avoid you at all costs. What you don't see is that actually in your lack of listening and lack of really attending, I don't, I don't feel respected by you. Yeah? And that's actually really painful for me because it's important to feel respected by others. You know. And when he communicates that, you know, I didn't ask him to actually use his own language to communicate that, which he does. The other guy is astonished that he's having this impact on him and he melts because the, his colleague has spoken with such heart around his longing to be respected, yeah? And he says, but you know, I get it because I want to be respected too. And I hate to think that, that I'm behaving in ways that actually undermines your sense. And, and they moved through to a very, I mean, there were a number of different sessions like this, but they, it really shifted that, converse, that, that, that relationship in such a fundamental way because the mindfulness practices slowed things down which enabled us to look at the kind of underlying relational needs that these people have around working together. So the mindfulness practice of, you know, slow it down. What sort of state are you in there? Where are you feeling in your body? Yes. So it gets you out your cognitive, let me rationalise this to actually what am I feeling? And then you go from what, what am I feeling back up into, well, I'm feeling like that. And that brings up almost like a deeper level of the cognitive stuff. 
Is that what happens when you when you go into your body and you work out where you're feeling those emotions and things like that? That then triggers some recollections. Well, it may not be recollections. It's quite helpful. You kind of want inviting me to kind of lay it out, perhaps in a more kind of sequential way. It's quite mm. quite useful, I think. So yes, there's the there's the behavioural piece you're just you know that we're thinking about here. You know what's actually going on, or the circumstances, the cognitive stuff. Often what we're, you know, this comes from emotionally focused therapy for couples, the EFT for couples. Okay, this is the kind of couple therapy that I do. All right. So a distinction is made between secondary and primary emotion. Okay. So secondary emotions are often harder protective emotions. So they or or styles of behavior, you know, that actually are designed to protect us. So anger is often what we see. Yeah. But some people don't use anger, they might you know, passivity, silent withdrawal or something. Yeah, so, you know, people's, people's um, protective aggravation comes out in different ways, if, if you see what I mean, yeah? But we call that a secondary emotion. Yeah? And in EFT, we would then talk about primary emotions. And the primary emotions are often vulnerable emotions. So the reason somebody feels angry is because I don't, I feel hurt, hurt that I don't feel respected. So the primary emotion is the hurt or the sense of hopelessness, or the sadness, yeah? So it's like we're moving down into from the secondary emotion through into the primary emotion, and then connecting it to a primary need. So what's the primary need relationally? Yeah? Usually it's to be seen, it's to be heard, it's to be valued, it's to feel connected, to feel trusted, yeah? I think there are actually relatively few really primary relational needs that people have yeah i'm talking about relational needs not all the broader needs of needs of a life but our relational needs and so often the triggers and difficulties in relationships come from not acknowledging our relational needs and there's a beautiful phrase from a, a writer called harville Hendricks, who actually a different kind of couple therapy but he says every you know, relational complaint or criticism is a tragic expression of an unmet need. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you think about when we are fighting with people, you know, anybody who's, you know, if, if a partner in our lives or something, or part, you know, fighting with one of our children about something, we're really triggered and we pause and think, oh, what am I really longing for right and then we find, oh, it's about actually feeling like you're listening to me and that you value my contribution or that you respect me, yeah, or that you actually mutually want to feel connected and express a sense of love together. Yeah, it's these kinds of things that people are really drives their behavior, actually. Yeah. But, they, but they lose sight of it and they get caught into cognitive justifications and look, this is the reason and we've got to solve it this way. And in some ways, some of that gets to be a bit of a distraction. Yes. But now some of this is I'm talking about what happens in the personal domain. Yeah. And I, I, in the work domain, it isn't such primary attachment needs we're necessarily talking about. But it's very often about respect by colleagues, very often about respect or feeling valued yeah? or feeling like there's a potential for collaboration. I get it. You'll push for time and with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? 
Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. The amount of times I've had feedback from my, my colleagues, particularly in general practice in medicine, that they don't feel valued. And that is the, their, their primary need at the moment is to, to be valued for all the extra work they're doing, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And, oh my gosh, there's just so much in this. And it's reminding me of the, the nonviolent communication stuff, which is all about, you know, all communication is, is, is needs, is an expression of what you need. And so this idea that you can just stop in a conversation, go down by noticing your emotional state will then help you connect better with that unmet need that you've got. Yes, yes. Which you can then express to the person is, wow, I mean, that is, I think that would change so many of the different conversations that we have. Because when I think about the various conflicts that I've been in or the various times where I've found it very difficult to have a difficult conversation or I've been upset, and like you said, anger, <laughs> that is just the, that, that, secondary emotion that we're seeing all the time isn't it and you know if you feel sad you get angry if you feel annoyed you get angry if you feel hurt you get angry so there's a lot of very angry people around which is covering up a lot of these unmet these tragic i love that quote every relational criticism is a tragic expression of unmet need and you can just so see that in conflict, can't you? You really can. You really can. Yeah, and, and perhaps I can emphasize because I, I do think the nonviolent communication approach is very, very interesting. And I've done training in that apart in the past. And I actually remember going along there with my partner and um, doing a weekend of it. And I remember us coming out of there. Um, we'd done a whole you know, full two days in, down in Brighton and, and then having a big row. <laughs> and I was kind of really curious that this is, I really like this model and yet it somehow hasn't helped us find a way through here. Why is that? Yeah. And so I think what, what I want to emphasize here is it, it misses for me, the NBC piece, but maybe not now I haven't updated myself recently on what they're saying, but you know, certainly when I, I learned this you know, a decade or so ago, and it is really crucial for interrupting the cognitive stream yeah so to go straight away to your unmet need without really processing the emotion like if you're feeling frustration just to sort of like cognitively say okay of course that frustration is just about an unmet need let me think about my un unmet need in a way there's no fair process to your own you know it's like we almost need to hear ourselves and allow ourselves to have that kind of that secondary frustration and, it, and it, I mean, it's fascinating working with people where if you kind of really meet them, say, oh, I can hear you're really, you're really feeling frustrated by this. Yeah, it's really triggering for you. And, you know, I can hear there's a part of you that's really fighting for yourself here. You know, the reason that emotion is there is because it's saying my boundaries are being cut across. Some values being cut across. This matters to me. So in some ways, we need to celebrate that emotion. We're not trying to crush it, you know, we're trying to say, yes, this is emotion that looks after, 
looks after you, it's fighting for you. It happens that if you then communicate from that place, it probably won't serve what you're trying to achieve. Yeah? So there's a sort of validation at one, one sense, and the validation actually makes it easier for the person to then get in touch with the deeper longing and the emotions around that need not being met. Does that make sense? So it's like, so I put a lot of value on the kind of noticing the, 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 the angry emotion, then coming to the body, then coming to and, and, and staying there. What's it like to stay with this stone-like tightness in your belly? Okay, and the person says, well, it's not very comfortable. Well, describe it to me. Is it large? Is it like a grapefruit? Is it little, little a pebble? Is it, is it like tentacles that, you know, and then they kind of I think, well, get really curious about this. That's exactly what you do in mindfulness practice. You know, you sit in quietly by yourself and you think, here I am trying to breathe. Oh, and now some kind of big emotions come up. I'm thinking of a conversation I had with somebody and how they really annoyed me. And now I've got all this tightness in my belly. And Oh, can I just be with the tightness in my belly and just breathe with this experience? And as I do that, what happens next? Yeah, so that's what we do in mindfulness, yeah? All by ourselves. If we're experienced practitioners, we, we, know, we get good at just meeting whatever comes up. Yeah? But it takes a while to get good at that. Whereas people just do it instantaneously if you invite them into it and you're there attending and asking them to speak out loud as the experience changes for them. And then how do, how do you go from, okay, I've noticed that there's that tightness in my belly to, oh, I'm really sad or I'm feeling not valued or how, how do you, there's one thing noticing what's going in your body, but mm. how do you then make that step to, okay, this is my primary emotion and this is my need? Well, I think there's a couple of options here. Firstly, not trying to do anything other than be present to what's there. Okay, that would be the mindfulness sort of story. Yeah? So you're simply, simply with what's there. And if it stays in a kind of stone-like, angry kind of place, with it, then we notice for a while that's what's happening. Yeah? And we might then choose to invite the person to shift their attention. Yeah? So we might say, okay, so I want you to sort of step back and, and, and let go of that. Let go of that kind of difficult conversation. Yeah. And maybe bring to mind something that actually really evokes a sense of ease and flow and maybe even joy for you. Perhaps walking in the woods or, you know, lying on a lilo in the sea or whatever it might be, you know, having that first cup of coffee in the morning, whatever. You know, so we can actively invite people into a more resourceful state. And how is that in your body right now? What's it like? And then, and then usually what you'll find is they'll describe a more flow state in the body, a more spacious state in the body. So we can just actively move people between these different states if we think it's, it's kind of unhelpful just to stay in a stuck, difficult state for too long. Then we move people on in, in another way. Yeah? And then we might say from that resourceful state, how would you imagine from this resourceful state dealing with this difficult conversation? Yeah? So there is a choice we can do there. But you know, going back to your question, very often what I find is you simply invite people to be with that experience and the difficult emotion just moves into something else all by itself. And you can pick it up, you know, because you can say, oh, I notice you're really kind of tuning into the sense of anger now. You know, and as you do that, what's that like for you? And someone might say, do you know, I actually feel weirdly, weirdly at peace now I've seen it. Or actually, I feel really sad. Or, yeah, I, you know, actually feel excited that it's possible to observe this without being kind of completely overwhelmed by it. Or, 
you know there's lots of different things that might people might experience and we and we might just choose to flow so if if a client is move, if there's a sense of the thing moving all by itself we can just stay close to it there's a metaphor i'm uh, i really like you know that sometimes people have about all the the emotions as like waves yeah up and down peaks and troughs and if we can just bring our awareness onto the surface of the of the wave like a like a surfboard and we just surf them then we're doing mindfulness and things won't stay the same everything is impermanent it will just change into something new so that's one option or we do this kind of actively stepping from the red into the into the green and inviting a more resourceful state so we have these options in a way i was listening to a a podcast the other day and this person was saying that they had all this therapy and it hadn't really helped them whatever but the thing that really had helped them was this noticing your thoughts and noticing the feelings because it it moves you from being the thoughts and the feeling to observing it and realizing that you don't have to stay in that zone or you don't even have to take notice of it or you don't have to do do anything with it so Mm. you know recognizing you're not the thought you are the observer of the thought and and you're saying that actually doing that automatically gets you more into into green than red is that right yeah exactly exactly you know the way the way the buddhists would say it you know i remember I can't remember if it was Jack Cornfield or one, one, of, one of those amazing American Buddhist teachers, you know, and I remember having this kind of like blinding insight when he said it, actually. He said, you know, the thing is that if we're feeling angry and we notice ourselves feeling angry and then we step back and observe this experience of anger, the part of us that's observing the anger is not angry. Or the part of us that's observing the anxiety is not anxious. Or indeed, the part of us that is observing the joy may not be completely consumed with joy. It might just be a calmer spaciousness. Yeah? And that's what the Buddhists mean by equanimity. Is like, I have the equanimity to observe the highs and lows, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life, yes, but somehow maintain my calm, centered sense of here I am amidst this experience. I don't have to be overwhelmed by any of these experiences. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and I think you describe it well, that kind of sense of, I mean, getting to that mindful relationship to thoughts is actually much harder than the mindful relationship to sensations in the body. I would do thoughts last in a way. <laughs> yeah, I would say, let's go for sensations first. Let's bring in some uh, vocabulary around emotions and just help people move around those experiences. And then we can notice the thoughts that are arising as well. But the, um, the sort of the phrase in, in the mindfulness training is like thoughts are not facts, you know, and it comes in week six of kind of continuous practice, you know, because the idea is that actually it's quite a difficult place to get to where you observe your thoughts without sort of somehow getting enmeshed with them. Interesting. Yeah. Thoughts are not facts. Also, feelings are not facts either. Exactly. Um, I mean, we'd say all phenomena, basically, in this kind of way of thinking are, you know, passing through the content. You know, there's a sort of content of awareness and there's awareness. So that people sometimes talk about the metaphor of, you know, all the contents of awareness might be like the clouds in the sky and your awareness is the sky. Or we might say that, you know, our awareness is the blank page and then our thoughts are written onto the blank page or the thoughts or feelings or sensations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you could use various metaphors to help people kind of get what we're pointing towards. Gosh, there's so much in here that I want to ask you about. 
But I want to ask you if we can get down really practical with this. So it's one thing having a difficult conversation with a coach present that can talk you through it, right? Yes. It's another thing when you're there, you've got, say, a really difficult patient, you can feel yourself in the red there, or you're having a a difficult conversation with a colleague and you know that you're both in red. What can you do yourself in those moments using this red, amber, green thing that will really help? Okay, that's a good question. And, and, And I think the first thing, we're trying to develop is this capacity to to pause and even notice how I am yes yeah? so, so so to be in red is is not the same as to notice I'm in red yes you know if we're just in red and just speaking in a kind of clipped and <laughs> abrupt way with our colleague yeah we're just doing red at that moment aren't we yeah whereas if I notice I'm in red that is a really important step. It's the crucial step in a way. Because when I notice, oh, look, I'm in red right now. Now, this is not a place to have a conversation from. Yeah? So we might simply choose to say, look, I think I'm going to take a, you know, I'm just going to take five minutes or I'm going to go and have a cup of coffee or whatever it is. You know, Let me come back once I've actually taken a moment. So that's the first step. So you can teach people the absolute basics of this very, very quickly. And then you can send people say, okay, what I want you to do in the, in, the, in the week before we meet again, what I want you to do is just to notice as best you can when in the week you find yourself in a red state and when in the week you find yourself in the midst of a red conversation. And indeed, you might choose to then say, but also notice when you're in a green state and when you're having a more flowing, easy conversation. So we're just inviting people just to notice something and maybe take a little note somewhere. Not to do practices particularly, not to do mindfulness particularly. If people want to, great. You know, I've got nothing against mindfulness. It's, it's fantastic. But, but in this approach, it's simply just notice red, amber, or green. Now, my experience is people will come back to you after one week and they say, oh, I was in the middle of this red, red, red state. They'll just use the language instantaneously. It's become part of their, their lexicon within the space of one week, actually. So that's a huge step forward. They've all now got a language for these different states, particularly between the red and the green. The amber is a bit more complex sometimes to get clear about the habitual, but they've got a, you know, a language for that. And then now you know that, oh, I'm noticing I'm in red state, and then you have some strategies for dealing with that. And you can people have different ways of them wanting to kind of, some people find that it's actually taking a pause. You know? Some other people would say to their, to their colleague, Oh, I feel like this is turning into a red conversation. And because they both have the same language, they say, oh, yeah, you're right. Come on, let's just take a walk around the block together and see, or let's go, let's just go into the, into the you know, side in the meeting room and just have a chat for, for 10 minutes. And what is it we're asked to do? Oh, we're asked to say, what's really important for me here that's not being seen? And then they start, you know, they've got some pointers to a different conversation. The main point being, don't try and solve your problem from here. This is not the place to solve the, the strategic issue or the patient issue or the kind of conflict. The first thing is to attend to yourself, tend to what's really going on, share a little bit with each other, hopefully, if you've both learned about it. And say, oh, given that, how do we know? How, how might we address it? I think that's, that's, that's such a good point. Don't try and solve this issue when you're both in red because it's, it's not going to go well. We, we're teaching the Lead, Manage, Thrive course with Redwell for sort of GP leaders and things. And we, we, we talked about a, a particular model of 
behaviors that you can notice in a meeting. It's the owl, fox, donkey, sheep model. And we would always say that whenever we were then in a meeting after that, if we realized we were behaving a bit in the sort of donkey fashion, just having the word donkey flit across our, our <laughs> consciousness would help us change our behavior. So do you find that with the red thing, just having reds, you know, just suddenly becoming aware that you're in that red, that in itself is a little bit therapeutic and helps you get out. I think it is, yeah. I mean, I would say that actually you're kind of observing your experience at that moment. You're not so identified with it. So it's like, it's like a little mini mindfulness trick, isn't it, in a way? Mm -hmm. Just having these little, di very simple diagnostic categories. Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit similar in some way. I don't know if you know the chimp paradox. Yes, it, love you know, that book. Talk about it all the time. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very good. And I think, you know, what, what I would say about this is that people just remember the red, amber, green even more easily. It's just so obvious what the red is. Yes, and it's so obvious what the green is. And so they actually literally get it within one, one speaking of this. And in this approach, there's probably much more emphasis than most I've seen on and now let me ask myself, how is this in my body? Yeah, I'm in a red state. Oh, how do I know this in my body? So we're bringing mindfulness to the chimp, basically, aren't we? We're bringing yeah. mindfulness to the chimp and then more relationality to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's those two things, yeah. And I love yeah. the fact you do this in, in, in the basis of conversation and you can bring up the fact, oh, we're in, having a red conversation here. So uh, we're nearly out of time. So, Graham, I'd love to ask you if you would like quickly maybe giving us three tips and a few strategies that you, when you do notice you're in red, because I think sometimes you've already mentioned quite a few different things that you can do, like go for a walk or, or do something, but, but what are some quick and helpful strategies you can use if you notice you're in your red on your own, or you notice you're in red in a conversation with people that, that you found that really work for people? Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, the first thing I've said already is, you know, noticing you're in red and actually even congratulating yourself on the fact that you've noticed yeah this strikes me as such a significant achievement it's like that noticing is the difference between war and peace really yeah so let's not let's not minimize the significance of that moment so i actually say to people when i, I they come back and say oh i noticed i was in red i don't just ignore that i then celebrate that and i really invite people to celebrate that a lot to themselves and say oh how did you notice that what, what enabled you to do that? Yeah. What else might support you to do that? So the noticing is really key. It might be that they say, do you know what I've learned is the early warning signal for me of being in red is I suddenly get this little stirring sensation in my belly. Or I notice that I'm getting sort of tightness in my cheeks. Or I start to clench a hand or something. Or people will have their own markers. Yeah. So again, I would say, it's that kind of emphasis on, oh, I'm in red, I'm noticing red, and, and I think part of my noticing red is this kind of embodied knowing, yeah? So that's really powerful. I think if somebody is able to stay with that a bit more, a very important bit would be then to say, what's it I most long for? What am I most needing, you know? So I'm in red, what am I most, what's the deepest need that, you know? my kind of body and mind are kind of somehow calling for and it's not such a big repertoire to be looking for it's 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 probably going to be something about being seen or respected or valued in some way or to have recognition or to you know sometimes it might be to feel safe actually we've had a lot of issues around safety of course in recent last couple of years or so yeah it's a very primary 
I'm in need, and somehow you're making me unsafe. So, 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 so when people see that need and they realize that need's not being met, I mean, that's, that's a significant thing, seeing it. And then we might really support people to have a more self-compassionate attitude towards this part of themselves. Oh, the reason I'm in red, you know, it's not that I'm just an angry person, you know, and I should be bad, bad about myself for being angry. No, no, it's actually that something is really, you know, I'm longing for that's not being met, and that's really scary or frightening, or I feel hurt in some way. And can I really kind of bring self-compassion to that experience? And we sometimes teach people self-compassion practices that really kind of breathe into that. Yeah, so that's really powerful. Offering a third one, it would be actually asking people, you know, in your repertoire of experience, what is it that helps you find, find you can calm yourself down? A lot of men will say to me, sometimes women as well, but you know, often a lot of men in financial services, they go off to the gym and do a lot of sort of heavy kind of gym work and they say, God, I just feel so calm after that. Or some people will go for a run. So exercise, physical exercise is very common. Yeah. Some people say, actually, I just know to go and speak to a friend. Another person says, I, will, I just I like to write in my journal. So, and of course, I distinguish with them between those, skill, those, those activities that feel like kind of skillful activities, like I've just been saying, or the ones which say I go and have, open a bottle of wine, which sometimes might be, if, if you're moderate, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah? But the idea that it becomes a treatment for red states is clearly not a terribly skillful way of, you know, it's very different going and having a nice bottle of wine when you feel like to enjoy yourself and want to kind of get a rid of, get rid of stressful feelings. Yeah. Is that giving you a bit of a flavour? Yeah, that's loads of strategies there, I think. Yes, I'm just thinking that bottle of wine thing. You know, partner comes home from work, you're sat there with your bottle of wine, and they're like, okay, it's a red day today. And I said, Rachel, <laughs> yep. But I love, all, I love all those things. I think I, I for me... The question, what am I most needing, is really core cool because I think I go to, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? What, you know, what, why am I feeling like this? Rather than what, am I, what do I need? What's the unmet need there that this emotion and, and the idea that the second, I would probably go first to my, straight to my secondary emotion. I'm feeling anger, I'm upset, yes. but then thinking, okay, what's the emotion under that? Why is that there? Because what am I needing? And drilling down to your needs. Yes. And it's much easier then to share your needs with somebody. It's much less triggering for them, isn't it? Because you're not accusing them of anything. You're just saying, I'm, this is what my need is. And that, that is the basis um, of a lot of the nonviolent communication stuff, isn't it? That you're not being judgmental to them. You're just feeling back what, what you feel and what you need, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And it can make people quite vulnerable sometimes to be expressing mm. their needs, you know. So it's not always easy to do, but you're right. I think it's quite pivotal when they can. It can really change what's going on. But the, but the risk is that you, know, you put out your need and the other person says, yeah, but you've never been satisfying my needs. This is, you know, it's, 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 it's <laughs> not a panacea. therapy, I'm thinking. <laughs> it's not a panacea. It's not a panacea. Yeah. And, so, and so if you're working with a pair of managers, you know, or indeed a couple, you know, a couple of, in psychotherapy, is what you're seeking to do is to show how the red trigger is kind of self-reinforcing. So you get a, what's called a negative cycle or a red cycle, I call it, which is by neither person's needs are being met. Yeah. And so you reach kind of 
one person typically one person's a bit more on the front foot and the being a bit more angry, the other one's being a bit more silent and a bit more distant. That's a very common pattern, yeah. But they're both wanting to find, to be valued and to be respected, to find collaboration in some way. Mm. They're just using different strategies. And so if you can sort of simultaneously diagnose what's happening in a pair like that, I mean, it truly is the basis for a breakthrough conversation because you deepen the trust so quickly, you know. And I can honestly say, I mean, this is true of couples as much as with managers. My experience is that I can have one session with people for an hour and really warring pair through this process of mutually people bringing down and showing them the dynamic of the, of the negative cycle, the red cycle, pulls them into a green cycle. And they walk away saying, it may not have solved the relationship, but they have a real deep sense of hope that, oh, this isn't a bad person I'm trying to work with. This isn't a hopeless case. I can really see a way through here. So it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of magical, actually. This is why I love this approach so much. It's, it's kind of magical. If you really help people mutually see each other's needs, it takes some skill to do that really well in a way that holds people safe and to see the cycle together. But if you do that, it, can, it, it lays the pathway to a much more positive relationship very, very quickly, actually. I can see that it's totally about understanding the other person, but you can't do that when you're in your red zone so I've, I've got one more question and then we do need to finish yeah what if you perfectly fine in green and then you notice that another person the other person is in red what should you do should you say oh yeah you're triggered your chimps out you're in red because presumably that might not go down so well well i think if if you are in green and you stay in green you might you might find it fine to let them just express their red yeah and to, and to, and to, you know, so I mean, supposing you're really angry with somebody, yeah? You know, supposing we're talking, you get really angry with me, and I'm thinking, God, something's really upset, Rachel. I wonder what it is, but I'm just not feeling triggered by it. Then I can sort of say, wow, God, I can hear something really important you want to tell me. And because I'm so open to you, you will, after expressing, your, you know, you might rage for a while, but you will move into a more amber or green state, yeah? because I'm not triggered. The problem is very often the other person gets triggered into their own red state as a defensive mm. kind of thing, but it's fascinating. Wow, wise words. Oh, great, thank you so much. I think there was so much in there that we can take away, just those little nuggets of, of wisdom. And also for me, I think it's just that recognizing, yeah, if you are in, if you recognize in your red and then go, okay, where am I feeling this in my body? And then what, what do I really need? That's that's half the battle. That's fantastic. And I know that you've written a book all about this. Uh, what's the book called and how can we get hold of it? So it's called Breakthrough Conversations for Coaches, Consultants and Leaders. And uh, it's published by Routledge and it's available from Amazon or all the bookshops. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. So I encourage people to get hold of that. If people wanted to contact you, what, what's the best way to get in touch and find out a bit more about your work? Probably the best way would be to contact me through LinkedIn. Great. So we'll put the link to your LinkedIn profile in the notes and people can get in contact and message you through that. They need yes. to. That's that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I think we'll have to get you back again at some point to talk a bit more about this. I'm sure people have lots of questions. And if you do have questions you'd like to put to Graham or any questions about any of this, please do email email in to us at hello at you're not a frog. We'd love to know what it is people are struggling with. So do get in touch with us. Mm. 
Graham, thank you so much for being with, with us. It has been really fascinating. So thank you. Go well. Thank you very much. Thank you for all your wonderful questions and the opportunity to share some of this. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.